Hello, and welcome to the Marketing Retro Podcast, where Josh and Adrian talk about different marketing topics on their mind. Adrian, what's on your mind this week? Hey, Josh. So um, this week, as probably with the most the recent weeks, um, really the B2B SaaS economic perception, the reality of our situation, and the big fat question that everyone's looking at is like, are we in a recession? Are, is the economic like downturning? What's going on? Um, I tweeted a few days ago about Patrick Campbell's stuff. He did, he's done a couple really huge uh, data analysis, essentially, of like, where is the B2B SaaS market today? What kind of things can you look forward to? What kind of things should you prepare? How do you prepare all of that stuff? And I absolutely love it because, of course, most of the time, his research just verifies my services, right? It's like, t- go talk to your customers, understand what your current customers want, and then you can upsell and cross-sell. And I'm like, yes, that's what I do. Let's do that together. Um, but I like, we kind of posed a question, or you did, that I really liked. And then thinking about, are we actually in a recession, like definitively by definition, or is it just, are we like perceiving a recession? And does it actually mm-hmm. matter? Because pocketbooks are pocketbooks. And if you're struggling to pay your bills, you're you're going to feel like you're in a recession. So I'm curious to hear what your thoughts are. So, yeah, I mean, it's less about if we are or if we are not <laughs> in a recession. Um, but I do feel like the perception does matter. I think that's the big thing that is going on. So everyone can see the headlines of all the tech layoffs. Everyone sees all these information. And B2B marketers and anyone in B2B, I think, is is definitely more dialed in, I feel like, to the tech landscape, like where... Um, you know, they're the ones that probably on LinkedIn, right? They're the ones mm-hmm. like hanging out in these circles where all you see are these these news headlines. And yet when you step back and look at it, it's like, what are the big ones that are doing it? It's the ones that are either massive big tech companies um, that are publicly traded, or they are the big ones that have raised a ton of money. So they're that like tier below that is certainly playing that game, playing the uh, mm-hmm. go big or go home type of game. Um, and in general, we won't, I'll spare you my, my tirade on this, but in general, my thoughts on why it's happening, um, is why the layoffs happen, which I think then has a definite circular reference back down to how, how this is all perceived from a, from a B2B tech person's perspective. But all of these people, all of these companies got easy money and mm-hmm. everyone got in over their skis because essentially they were like, Hey, I get to make bets that are five and 10 years out versus worrying about the two to three year horizon. Right. So money was so cheap that they could borrow it. VC rate money raises all these. So they staffed up, they did all these things. And now they're realizing they have to tighten up and they have to really now look at two, three, five year horizons versus five, 10 year horizons. So that meant all these experiments are going out, all these bets that are saying, we're trying to make sure people are in place for the bets that are there three, five years out to support the business. And now that they've like tightened it up, everything's kind of just, like I said, tightened up, which involves belt tightening of budgets, yeah. which involves cutting cutting people that they thought were you know going to help on those bigger bets. Um, and in general, yeah, it's just, it, it became a self-fulfilling prophecy once the money dried up or the mm-hmm. money got tight. 
and now it's circular, right? Now every every and even in Patrick Campbell's post, he's talking about tightening your own belts. And I'm sitting there thinking, like, okay, now you're adding you're adding to it, which is fine, because but everyone is taking it from their own perspective and and tightening up. So regardless of what is actually happening, once the money thing happened, it just mm-hmm. was a domino effect. And now everyone is how far is it gonna tighten or how much are people going to make decisions based off of the data they have versus, you know, what is the perceived going on, but perception's reality. So it mm-hmm. just keeps being circular and tightening up a little more, if that makes sense. Absolutely. And I think the companies, like you said, those bigger, the IPO that raised a lot, there's a lot of investor pressure to like play the game, right? They're not mm-hmm. looking at the businesses and running it like, you would a small mom and pop shop, right? Like, it's not like, let's be profitable. Let's build slowly. Let's expand when we need to, when the market demands it, let's make sure we're responding. Um, You know, when money was cheap and free and it was valuations were insane. I remember on Twitter, people just being like the naysayers or maybe the more realistic type folks were like, these evaluations are going out of control. And there's going to have to be an adjustment at some point. Um, And I think we're in the adjustment right now. In a lot of ways, all of the economy is in the adjustment. But at the same time, like I've seen other people, and I wish I could remember who it was, share like growth is happening in B2B SaaS. People are actually, while some divisions are getting laid off, some departments, there is a lot of growth. A lot of people are still hiring. Even companies who did layoffs in some areas, they're hiring in others. So it is that perception. If we're seeing big headlines of Stripe laid off and Facebook and Twitter, like all of the big companies that we kind of look at and see too, and you know the FANG companies that people model after are behaving this way, then it looks like it's the entirety of the market. When if you go kind right. of granular and look at the smaller guys, maybe the ones who didn't get to play wild and loose two years ago and who were still just trying to run a profitable business, they're still running a profitable business. They're still trying to run a profitable business, which to me, it seems crazy that you would run a business in a company that people rely on. You know, you have employees, this is people's livelihoods, that you can run it in a way that's fashionable. Does that make sense? Like (laughs) that something could go in and out of fashion. I had Chris Savage on my other podcast and he was saying that they were running Wistia very profitable, but uh, there was a point when investors and people were like, you're too profitable. You shouldn't have mm-hmm. that much money. Mm-hmm. You should run in debt a little bit. And I, like, he did this speech, he did his talk at Boss, and I was sitting in the front row, and my face was just, like, physically, I was reacting to that. Like, for me, debt is, like, I don't want to be in debt. I don't like debt. I understand that some people know how to use it. It's not my favorite thing. Um, and that's just personal choice. But like to run a business and be told you're too pro, like, I don't know. It just didn't make sense to me. So it seems like it's that. Like, where are you getting advice from? How are you doing? How are you running your business? And are you running it in a way that's fashionable and that like goes with the times? Or are you running it like, does it going to, you know, succeed the test of time, I guess, is what I'm trying to say, which, you know, that perception can be that perception is reality, for sure, like you said. I think the big part of that is it's fear, right? It's I think it's a either a, a fear of missing out on like, mm-hmm. hey, everyone's doing it this way, I need to do it this way. Or, or on the extreme other end of people 
probably arguably more like me that are like more frugal and like want more control. And instead of having investors, uh, you know, on our board or anything like that, that are just have an influence that to bring in their own fears of like, well, you're not keeping up. You're going to get eaten by the market unless you grow, unless you're spending this money to acquire customers or that type of thing. But I guess what it comes back to is like, how, where are your actual values? Are you just riding the train of the free money? Which I think from an opportunistic standpoint, like, sure, go ahead. But the challenge you have to realize that the trade-off is you can't put that genie back in the bottle or it's really, really hard to. Once you yeah. were so like, hiring people and before there was a large talent war and you've got people coming in and you're paying, you know, probably way out of market salaries yeah. or all of a sudden that becomes market salary because everyone's doing it and everyone's trying to get these, these, you know, get, get talent to place their 10 year out bets and all these other things. But now mm -hmm. it's all coming back, which personally I like, cause I always thought the stuff was getting way too crazy for me. So I just yeah. sat on the sideline and did my own thing. Right. But, but that's where I think it's, it's hard to be fashionable. And I think the only way to probably properly do that is to do it in a way that maybe you're using contractors to do that. So you're not putting people's livelihood at stake. Like if I mm. want to make these bets, it's not an owned bet, it's a rented bet. So mm. maybe it's like, I keep my own in-house tight and like on budget. It's like, you're going to go and Hey, there's times you're going to go spend on vacation, but it's a situational thing. But if you raise your cost of living on a bigger house car leases and all of those things like you raised your base and you it's hard to go back from that you don't want to go back to living in that other house or go back to an old beater after you've driven a nice car so right. can you put that back in the bottle and in my view you should probably own like keep a tight thing on the things you're doing day to day but then after that like rent those other pieces make those bets on those so rent the nice car when you're out on vacation spend splurge on vacation but like dial it back to reality. So that's my best way of trying to keep fashionable and also having to take advantages of the, of the peaks and treating it like a bonus versus like a regular paycheck. That is a lot so of analogies smart. in there. Yeah. <laughs> so. I think that's so smart. So let's, let's unpack that a little bit, especially for, I know we're kind of stepping a little out of marketing. This is kind of going into like B2B SaaS era, but we're all really jobs, all kinds yeah. of stuff. Yeah. So I like the idea, though, of, you know, you keep your in-house tight and then you rent or you contract what might be extra. Like the Stripe CEO said he realized that he made a mistake. He made a bet, right, on the customer service and all of the new people. And it was the wrong bet. He should not have, you know, expanded his in-house in the way and as quickly as he did. Mm -hmm. And he could have contracted those folks for a year. I've worked on one-year contracts. Like you could have done that. And then their year is up and then you reevaluate, hey, are we still there? Um, especially in such, in the market that we were in in 2020, like there's no way everyone thought that was going to stay consistent. Like we all right. knew this is something weird. We don't know exactly what we're in. Why is it growing? This is a weird spot. Like 2020 to 2021, 22, that was just, it was weird, right? Like, so it, that's really smart though. But you don't get to keep up with the Joneses if you're contracting. Right. People ask you, well, right. how many overhead do you have? How much overhead do you have? And the more employees you have, the bigger fish you are in the pond and the, you know, the bigger your ego gets, the better you're doing, the better things mm -hmm. are. And so that's probably a huge fight for some of these founders is to fight against their own ego, to fight against what 
you know, that FOMO, that fear of missing out of like, are we actually, are we trying to stick, you know, compete with the Joneses or are we doing really what's best for us in-house and our team? Right. Mm. Or even on their, for their managers and directors, because how do they progress their careers headcount as well? Like it's all of these quote unquote vanity metrics of things that are sort of everyone has their own, you know, incentives and motivations. Right. So it's like, if you, you know, and that, and that probably gets back to culture, right. So Mm -hmm. without going too down far down the tunnel of like culture and how companies are built or how they should be built or, but those, those all, we're all people. So they come back down to, you know, emotions and values and, and all of those pieces that, that factor that in. So, yeah, absolutely. It's tough though, when you're one of a thousand or 2000, 7,000 laid off and you know oh, yeah. maybe people are saying, no, the economy's going to be fine. It's growing back. Like, this is great, but you're sitting here struggling to find a job. Like that's, that's a different scenario completely. It doesn't really matter what the economy says when, you know, you're looking at, can I pay rent this month? Can I buy groceries this right. month? Like those are seriously, you know, challenging situations. And part of it is, you know, I feel like the people who did the hiring two years ago, it, it almost wasn't a consideration of the individual, which it never is, right? Like that's, maybe that's capitalism. Maybe it's not crony capitalism. I don't know. That could probably be an entirely different conversation, <laughs> but it seems like, if I were running a business with a team and people relied on me to like literally live and survive, that's a lot of pressure. And I would want to make sure that I did everything in my power. They could continue doing that, right? Like that it's going to continue working out. Um, I don't know. It's tough. I, I just want to acknowledge that. Like if anyone's listening and they're part of the layoffs, we're not, not trying to like demean that, Oh, it's just perception snap out of it. Like it's real especially if you're one of those people. So it's, that's a challenge. Yeah, I agree. And that's, that's where I feel like, you know, leadership had failed, right. Mm -hmm. In a lot of these scenarios, like where they, you know, like you said, it was probably common sense if they took a step back and looked at it. But again, their jobs are really hard as well. And looking at all of these things, they didn't, you know, as much as if you ask them and you probably, I've heard, ask any CEO, you know, what percentage are you overstaffed? How much do you really need? I mean, I think most of them are, and most of them do think about it and, and, or don't think about that. And they're just like too concerned with their number one job, which is growth. Right. So they're thinking about the bets, those people. And I'll be honest, most of those, especially these bigger ones that we're talking about that did get in over their skis, um, they were in the growth at all cost mode because they had the FOMO of being the one that didn't take advantage of this opportunity. Yeah. Um, they didn't want to be the headline in five years saying, Oh, this person took the wrong bet, like didn't make any bets and now look at them. And now mm-hmm. they're, you know, they, they, so it's that fear of being that person on the other side of the psyche. Um, yeah. And if you're responsible to shareholders and yeah. you made money in those two years, then that's a win. You know, yeah. and now the reason you're cutting is to continue to make money for your shareholders. That's still a win for the CEO, right? Like for right, right. the high executives, not necessarily for the person sitting in the chair. But if right. that's the way, yeah. if that's win or lose, if that's how you look at it, then they made the right calls on both ends to hire over and push big and make those big bets and then to cut this year. 
Yeah. The biggest part I would say that where it falls down is in that employee side, right? So like, I feel like why people get employed essentially want to work for other people because you don't want to work for other people, but the people that do want to work for other people, I think what they want is security and they want a place to learn. They want a place to feel safe and not have to worry about all the other things outside. And I feel like that's the biggest disservice that has happened over the past few years with, with bringing people in without considering that, that safety mechanism, right? Cause that's, that's the thing that the con the, I would say the implicit contract that is made between an employee and an employer is basically, this should be a safe space. Um, yeah. And if, the employer isn't thinking of that way or has reasons why it's not going to be that's ultimately that they bear that responsibility. So if they're making these bets, then like I said, it's better to make a bet with a contractor in my yes. opinion. Um, or if that is that if I am bringing someone on, just letting them know like, Hey, you're being brought on full-time as an employee. I'm letting you know where this is in the pecking order. This is a long-term bet. If it doesn't work out or if the economy cuts out, you're probably the first to go. If you're okay with that coming in, now I don't know how many people can have that mature conversation with that and for a CEO or some leader to really tell them where they are in the pecking order. Like yeah. that's some transparency and maturity that has to happen. Yeah. If you come from a union though, like you saying that reminds me of my husband's job. He came from a union and literally they would know if you're, you were Mm -hmm. hired first, you're let go first, like, or last, let go first. That's just the way it is. Um, So, you know, tech's not quite there yet with unions and all of that stuff. But I think one of the interesting things talking back about Patrick's two tweets, one -hmm. was in February and one was just uh, in March the first. So he's kind of done these, big tweets, these big threads, lots of data pulling uh, the first of each month. They've changed though. So in the February tweet, he was like, it's not looking good. Uh, B2B is not looking good. B2C is not looking good. Uh, People aren't buying, you know, a lot of that stuff. So he was kind of giving advice and like, revert back to your own customers, figure out how to do upsells, figure out all of those things. But in the second tweet in March, there was some hope, right? Like, so some things were still not like great, but he was also able to say like, here's where growth is actually happening. So even though we've got lots of data pulling and, you know, companies are reacting, it's a pretty, like, I don't want to say volatile market, but it's changing and it's changing for the better. Like there's improvement happening. I think the perception was, and I'm seeing this in my own business. I can feel this as a consultant for B2B SaaS right now that people are kind of waiting for the dust to settle before, okay, now we move on and we do these big projects. And now we're going to go and like, it feels like Q2, Q3 is when this year is going to actually get started. The layoffs happened, cutbacks happened. They don't want to get too public because their public announcement was that they had to lay off or something bad. And they don't want to continue to like, oh, wait, you got to lay off. And then now you've got this major announcement or things like that. That doesn't look great. So kind of the vibe I'm getting for a lot of B2B SaaS is that everything, we're just waiting for the dust to settle, seeing where things land after Q1, seeing how, where we're at as far as revenue, as far as like where our goals were. And then it seems to me, I can almost feel like Q2, Q3 is when it's going to be very busy, very explosive. Things are going to get back to normal, I think. Okay. Okay. Fingers crossed. (laughs) That might be some optimism on my part, but... That's what I'm hoping for. 
So one thing to uh, to bring up too, if, if people aren't familiar with Patrick Campbell, so he ran ProfitWell, which got bought by Paddle mm-hmm. uh, like last year. So he's sitting on an extremely uh, large data set. Like they yeah. have essentially, I would say Stripe level data, but a good, a solid amount because they get, they offer a free tool that does does your you know tracks your metrics from a from a numbers perspective so he's got a lot of data he's sitting on yeah. um and so you know the conclusions he's drawing you know are very interesting to me and it's funny as i read it from the lens of my perspective right so saying when he goes in there and says oh people should be looking at expansion people should be looking at like here's some tactics you can deploy and some things like that mm-hmm. and and what i find interesting is like I take it with a certain grain of salt and I think everyone should. And um, because, because I'm looking at it, because I know my customer base, right. Mm -hmm. I know what they're doing. I have my own numbers and I'm doing my own sort of like uh, trending of like what is going on. So I I don't, I don't want to, I would worry about anyone like looking at those and just like, Oh, Patrick says this, I need to do this. Right. And I know there's some people out there that may or may not, um, or people that aren't as in touch with their, their user bases. Mm-hmm. Um, but that, that's my only cautionary tale with some of it. Cause I look at it and I'm like, well, I'm not seeing those same trends. So like I'm taking it as an input with a grain of salt for my own business. Um, but like there's certain trends I'm seeing that are like contradictory to the, some of the ones that he's seeing. And again, I am looking at a much smaller data set. It's my own, but it's also the most impactful one to me, right? Right. Like I shouldn't look at someone else's aggregate data to advise based off of my very specific set of data. So 100%. And I think that should be like the takeaway and maybe even like a caveat at each one of the data points that he pulls out is like, and he, he does say it pretty much like, go look at your own customers, though. Go talk mm-hmm. to your own customers. See where um, there's opportunities within your own customer base. And I think, you know, oftentimes, and that's what keeps me in business, is that B2B SaaS founders struggle to understand and look at the data of their own customer base. Um, you know, it can just be hard to extrapolate, understand what's good data and what's not good data and where should we get it. And then actually having conversations or community with your current customers so that you can kind of pull out and see these trends. Um, Doing that, like the way you're doing it, not only helps you feel confident about your strategy and approach today, but it helps you respond to what potentially could happen next year or in 18 months from now. Like it keeps you prepared. It keeps you ahead of your very specific market. And it almost gives you the opportunity to really play in a micro environment. Like you are in a micro uh, economy with your own customers and you just to keep your blinders on. You get to be focused on your customers, your little space. You don't have to take on noise from the entire industry, which I think is smart and the way it should be done. I mean, I definitely take not like what Patrick is. I will read those because it is Absolutely. very important to see what else is going on. And yeah. same thing with like, general benchmarking and the general like, is this good? Am I doing okay? Like you do have to take consideration with your own set, hopefully. Um, but, but it also is a general guideline, right. To being like, am I, you know, am I the outlier for, and is there Mm -hmm. a good reason I'm an outlier or am I just doing something that is like 
so non-best practice. And so like, am I doing something stupid to where I should smack myself in the head and being like, oh, wow, everyone else is converting at 5% and I'm converting at 3%. Is it, mm-hmm. is it, is it me or is it my market or is it my context? Right. So I think still those benchmarks are all great for these types of things and they're great to give you ideas, but at the same time, like it's a secondary data source and you should yes. like, just like you preach with, you know, customer research and, and doing your own, uh, having a, uh, having a pulse on what is really your reality and context, um, I think is 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 the most important when looking at any of these, and and with the economy and all of these things, it's like I take it all with a grain of salt. It's like cool, but when I'm I trust what I'm seeing. I have high confidence in how I'm tracking this information. And so, if you don't have your house in order for right. those numbers, get your house in order. Yes, I think that's the biggest takeaway. Get your house in order. Like you need to know, and that's something that I'm thinking about. Uh, talking about this product market flywheel rather than product market fit. And there's no way to know how you are doing if you're not comparing yourself to yourself. So if you can't look at last year's numbers, two years numbers and know like, how are we performing with CAC or, uh, you know, lifetime value or all of those kinds of numbers that B2B SaaS founders need to look like. If you can't compare yourself to yourself and understand like we're doing better than we were last year, we're doing worse than we were last year, then your house isn't in order. And I would agree with you 100%. Mm-hmm. That's going to be the most important thing. Cool. Well, yeah. Uh, so yeah, conditions have changed externally, yeah. and but take it upon yourself to make your adjustments and make sure you're houses in order. So you have confidence in your adjustments. Yeah. And marketers can participate in that as well. Like marketers knowing your numbers and where Mm -hmm. your, you know, what, where do you lie? Who are your customers? Marketers, like you play a big role in helping the founder be able to execute or the CEO, whichever size company you're at, um, Mm -hmm. able to execute in this way. So it's a crazy environment, but I think it's, uh, it's teaching lessons. So, you know, it is what it is. Everything everything will be all right. Yeah. Yeah. It'll be fine. It's all going to work out in the wash. Yep. All right. Well, thanks, thanks Adrian. Josh. Thank you. Bye. Bye.